This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Very often, but I, I wanted to wind them up and get their juices flowing. I'm going to get, I thought I just, I could repeat it or I could play it for you and wind you up. So uh, I hope you got wound up a little bit. I had three ideas going there. One is that hindsight matters. And uh, especially when you are in, number two, uh, anticipating some emotional trauma or some surgery or some painful event or, or something that's coming. And in El Huapo, uh, from the movie Three Amigos, uh, I'm going to use that term several times here today. And uh, so it has a comedic connotation to it. I'm going to remove that because I have a book at home of Spanish idioms. And uh, there really is a Spanish idiom about your El Huapo. And uh, that word in Spanish means uh, Huapo is a, El Huapo is a beautiful man. Huapa is a beautiful woman. So literally that's what it means. But figuratively, figuratively the idiom is what is out there looming that you must face? And how will you face it? How will you approach it with El Huapo, with beauty and grace and confidence and, and whatever? But it's something out there that's looming for you, your El Huapo. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning um, for each body in this room. I, I thank you that by divine appointment you got us here. Whatever weirdness is going on in this service or um, unusual thing, Father, I pray that it would be used for your glory, that in the end um, you... Um, would be glorified by it, you would be lifted up by it, that our understanding of who you are and what you've done would grow, Father, and as it grows, our place in your kingdom would become clearer to ourselves. We thank you for that. We pray for safety for the men uh, on the retreat today, Father, and uh, we just pray that uh, they are hearing the word preached there as well and that you are being glorified by what goes on there uh, at that time, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go to Luke 22. You can uh, turn your Bibles there. We'll start eventually here in verse 39. Um, just to give you some context, where, where we are, uh, Jesus has had his ministry. He's got his disciples, and he's now in the very last week of his life. It's uh, Passover week. He's entered into Jerusalem, and he's, we're actually in the seventh day. We're in the, the last day uh, of Passover. And what's gone on here most recently is Jesus uh, having foreknowledge about what's going on and what's going to happen. As he sent uh, the disciples in, they found an upper room. He goes to the upper room, and in the upper room, he gives them a what we call the farewell address. He talks to them, and he has several things on his mind to tell them because he knows time is short. And uh, as time is short, let's, let's go over what needs to go over. So there at that Passover dinner, uh, he introduces uh, them to uh, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. But he tells them something that may not have been clear to them, although he's told them three times already in this book, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be turned over. And, uh, but he tells them, here my body uh, will be broken for you, my blood will be shed for you. And so if I haven't made that clear to you yet on this last Passover dinner, let me make that clear to you. And by the way, one of you in this room is going to betray me. There's a betrayal afoot that's uh, close to happening. Um, and as uh, this happens and this unfolds, 
uh, I want to adjust your expectations somewhat. You think that you're going to greatness, that we're going to greatness. I'm going to establish the kingdom now in greatness. No, you are entering a time of, of servanthood and you will become servants in the days that are soon to follow. And Simon, Simon, you're going to fail. You're going to deny me three times. I've prayed for you, but you're going to fail at, uh, at what you have to go. It's going to be difficult. The days ahead are going to be uh, way more difficult uh, than they thought they were going to be. To use Grant's phrase this morning, things are going to be way worse than they thought. Not only that, the last time I sent this, the 12 out, last time I sent the 72 out, I told you, don't take an extra pair of shoes. You won't need them. I told them, don't take your knapsack. You won't need it. I said, I, I've got you covered. Uh, you, you'll be safe. I've got homes set up. And they went and they came back and everything was great. But he has just told them to have a different expectation. He's just told them. Not only were they, will they be servants in the days ahead, but they're going to need their knapsacks. You're going to need extra sandals. And you might even carry along a sword with you. The days ahead are not what you were thinking. They're, not, they're going to be way worse than you thought. Now, this is important context uh, for what we're going into because uh, if I go, if you're already there in uh, Luke 22, if you back up to verse 37, he actually says there uh, in 37, he says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. He references Isaiah 53 there about the transgressions that Steve had us all read this morning. But he's basically telling them there's some scripture that has to be fulfilled. And what I want you to glean from this context I've given you so far, Jesus knows the plan. There's a plan. This plan has existed since before time. And the plan is that Jesus will go to Jerusalem to be crucified and killed. The plan is somebody will betray him. The plan is my blood will be shed and my bones will be broken. And Jesus, with all the clarity in the world, knows that that scripture must be fulfilled. That is the plan that must be fulfilled. There are dark days of tribulation ahead for his disciples. Starting in verse 39. And he came out. Pause there. And he came out. Came out from where? Well, we have here, we have a new scene, and, and, and finding this scene, there's some literary stuff going on here that I'm going to turn you on to that's going to help you find what Luke wants us to find in this passage. He came out from the Last Supper. He came out from the upper room. So we have a scene change. So we've got this scene change, and, and so now as we come gather together to look at our text, we need to ask ourselves, where does this scene start and where does it end? Where is the beginning and where is the end? Because we, we can read all about what happens here in, in Gethsemane, and we get to 47, and while he was still speaking, it seems like there's some continuity. But I want to point out to you, we're not going to go to 47, we're going to stop at 46. All right, when we're just going to talk about this prayer at Gethsemane. Now, do something uh, uh, here also that I'm not supposed to do, but it's going to be helpful this morning. They, they teach us that when we're going through a book of the Bible, especially the Synoptic Gospels, and I've got this story, for example, the story of Jesus' prayer in the garden, I'm supposed to just look at Luke's version of it and stick to Luke. 
I shouldn't go to Matthew and Mark's version of it and see what they got to say. Because see, each, each of them has a different perspective on what they want us to glean from this verse. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick to Luke, but as I stick to Luke, I'm going to show you Matthew and Mark along the way. And that's going to help you see what Luke wants you to see that the other guys aren't worried about. They got a different issue or, or idea they're going to pull out of this. So we're, we're going to do this uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Luke has written what Luke has written. And we're going to try to find exactly what Luke wants us to find in what he has written. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to steer you because he he has some very distinctive emphasis compared to the other two gospel writers, and I want to convince you that Luke is on a mission to emphasize something to us that begins and ends just with this scene, 39 to 46. All right, 39 to 46. And what we're going to find between 39 and 46 is way worse than you think. Now, if, uh, now let me help you with this a little bit. We'll do a setting here in just a minute. But in, in verse uh, 40 there, 40b, second half, he says, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now jump ahead and read verse 46. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We call that, as you all well know by now, bookends. Some, some people call it an inclusio, but it's a beginning and an end. It's a literary device, and that device is put there. It's, it's the way they wrote back then so that we would find this end and this end, and it's in the middle is where we want to stay. So we're not going to go on to verse 47. We're going to stay from 39 to 46, or 40, specifically to 46, and we're going to try to find what's in the middle because that's where we find the emphasis of the passage. That's where we find what he really wants to say. So we have, uh, we'll find our emphasis by staying between these two markers. So we're not going to go to 47. We're just going to stay here in the garden. Now let's, let's back up a little bit. And he came out and he went. Let's pause there for a minute. Where did he went? It says he went somewhere. He went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. All right. Now, um, let, me, let me keep reading. He went, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them. So where he went was to the place. He went to the Mount of Olives, but he went to the place. And the Mount of Olives is a, is, a, is a whole mountain range. And so that's like me telling you, I'm going on a picnic tonight, and I'm going to the Sandia Mountains. Okay? And you go, where? And I say, Doc Longs. And now you know where I'm going in the Sandia Mountains, Doc Longs. Now, if you read Matthew and Mark, they don't say, they say the Mount of Olives, and then they tell you, and Gennesaret. He ended up at, they tell you Doc Longs. They, they throw that piece of information in. Luke doesn't do that. Did he not know how to spell Gennesaret? Uh, 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 what's going on here? It, was this intentional? Yes, I'm going to suggest to you this morning. It's very intentional. As we go along here, he is going, Luke is going to leave out a lot of details that the other guys put in because Luke wants to focus our attention in a very narrow spot. He's not interested in some of the other things. Exactly where this happened is, is not on Luke's radar. He has a unique departure from the way the other two guys uh, spell Gethsemane, or, or spell out Gethsemane in their passage. His consistent departure from the way they, those two tell the stories is a clue to us. 
he has a different message to draw from the text. And we're going to find, do our best, not to be distracted by those things he's left out because he's intentionally left them out as they might distract us or give us an, uh, lead us in the wrong direction. So he doesn't say Gennesaret, he just says the place. And then he said to them. Who's he talking to? Them. Okay, he, he's talking to them and he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation and he withdrew from them. Matthew and Mark don't say he was talking to them. Matthew and Mark say he was talking to Peter, James, and John. They're very specific about this. But Luke doesn't care that it's Peter, James, and John. Because he's afraid if he says Peter, James, and John, that we'll, we'll get hung up on Peter, James, and John. And we know a lot about Peter, James, and John, okay? Well, a lot about their personalities, and we don't want that to be a distraction, so we're just going to talk about them. So if it's not about Peter, James, and John, who must this be about that's in the passage? Jesus. Good God. Good job. Okay. <clears throat> Luke wants us to know that what's about to happen, the point he wants to make, has something to do about Jesus. It's not Peter, James, and John and what they do or don't do in this scene. It's what does Jesus do in this scene. Peter is narrowing the focus <clears throat> very, very intentionally. He's being very precise in what he writes. The scene's not about the disciples' failure to pray. It's going to be something about Jesus and his prayer. You see how we're bringing it in? And instead of teaching four or five different ideas, we want to see what Luke wanted us to see. And the thing that we're going to want to see, we always look for repetition, is there's a temptation about to happen. That's the word that's repeated. And you and I know... From, from weeks past up here, from the pulpit in the classrooms, repetition gives us emphasis. It tells us what we want to focus on. We're going to focus you all on temptation, on the temptation of Jesus Christ. But before I get into the text much more, I want to talk just a little bit about temptation. James chapter 1, Mark. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We're about to read about Jesus in the garden and his temptation. It's, a, it's essential. It's crucial for you to resolve, to know right now in your mind, God is not tempting Jesus. God doesn't tempt us. He tests us, but he does not tempt us. We know that from Scripture. So it's important to know this. Now, this is not Jesus' first rodeo with temptation. Let's just take a look real quick at Luke chapter 4, Mark. We've just had, we've got Jesus in the desert. He's in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. The de devil comes, tempts him three times, three different ways. Jesus resists all the temptations. And after he resists all the temptations, Jesus answered him, the devil, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He departed from him until an opportune time. He departed from him until an opportune time. At the time of the desert temptation, the time had not yet come. That's a phrase we see over and over again in Scripture as Luke's long, but the time had not yet come. 
What's happened here in the garden is the time has come. The devil departed for until an opportune time. What's going to happen here in the garden is the opportune time has presented itself. And once again, Jesus is going to be tempted. He's not going to be tempted, however, by God. What, what Jesus is facing here in the garden is a temptation delivered from the hands of Satan. The hard part of this for Jesus, he knew it was coming. He knew the plan. He knew the plan before he was born. That he would be tempted in the desert, but then the devil would withdraw. But there would come another time when he would face Satan down. Once again, he would have to come face to face, and face, to face with Satan another time to be tempted. Jesus knew this was coming. This was Jesus at Wapo. He knew a time was coming in his life where he would have to have boldness. He would have to have courage. He would have to have the gumption to face, this, face Satan down. And he knew how hard it was going to be. He fought the temptation in the desert with Scripture. That's a lesson for you and me. He fights the temptation here with prayer. That's a lesson for you and I as well. He knows the plan. He knows it's going to be worse than he thinks. And he has the option here. He has several options. He can raise his hand and say, I quit. Isn't that what was said in the wind-up? Didn't one of the guys offer that suggestion? He could ask for a stick in, in the mouth. He, he could ask for a nerve block. Or he could, he could take up that position. One of the guys in the wind-up said, I take the suffer not position. Jesus could tap out. Jesus knows he's going to be tempted to tap out. Jesus knows how hard this is going to be to face this temptation once again. Verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. He knelt down. Okay. Now, uh, customarily, at this point in time, if I was preaching to you, what would be my position? I would be sitting down. I would be sitting down. And because you have respect for me, you would be standing up. No offense. Taken. The protocol at this time in history, when you prayed, was to pray standing up. You prayed standing up and you lifted your hands to heaven in prayer. And we see that all throughout Scripture. But Jesus is kneeling down. I'll even concede that Matthew and Mark say he fell on his face. He is in an absolute form of humility here. He's at his wit's end. The intent, this, this position, this prayerful position on the ground shows the intensity of, of the, his intention to pray in every aspect, every way that he can. The depth and the earnestness and the pleading it manifests itself by the fact that he's on his knees. This isn't a regular prayer. Now let's stop a minute and let's, let's, let's get centered and let's make sure we don't get off base here. He's praying. He knows the plan. 
he knows he's about to be arrested. That's what happens in verse 47. He's about to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be whipped. They're going to whip the flesh off his back. Then they're going to make him carry a cross on that back, that bleeding, bloody back. He's going to carry, he knows he's going to carry that cross and it won't even make it to its destination. Somebody else is going to have to, to take, take over for him and carry it the rest of the way there. He knows when he gets there that nails are going to be driven through his hands and through his feet. And he's going to bleed and then he's going to hang off of those nails. And the only way he's going to be able to catch a breath is to push off of his feet. And the pain is going to be excruciating. But he knows that part of the plan. The distinction I want to make here, as we read it this morning from Isaiah 53, it was God's will to crush him. All of that that he knows about to happen is God's will. God has willed this. That's not what he's praying about. According to Luke, he's not praying about the nails. He's not praying about the, bra- the cross or the blood. He's praying about the temptation that Satan's going to come and try to talk him out of it. Can I withstand this temptation? Temptation. Pray, pray it says, that you will not enter temptation. The temptation is that I won't take up the cross. That God's will will not be done. So he goes to Stone's throat, he knelt down, and that's what he's praying. Father, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless my will, but not yours be done. Your will is that you're going to crush me. I want that will to be done. Let's back up just a little bit, though, because he's talking about this cup. And this cup comes around in Scripture over and over again, Mark, Isaiah 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath and have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There's a cup to be drank from. Give, us, give me the next one, Mark, from Ezekiel. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation and the cup of your sister Samaria. This cup contains horror. And Jesus knows the plan. He knows what's in that cup. And he's asking it to be taken from him. Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup is for the wicked. It's the wicked who drink from the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This is not about the cup. It's about what's in the cup. And what's in the cup is the wrath of God. And who's going to drink what's in the cup? The cup is an idiom for what it holds. The wrath of God. Who will ingest the wrath of God? So he's praying, and he's praying in this moment. He's, his focus, though, is not on the crucifixion. His, his focus is on the temptation, right? He's not going to raise his hand. He's not going to ask for a new block or a stick between his teeth or a little Novocaine. He's going to, he wants to face this El Huapo, and he wants to pass the test. He's not looking for an off-ramp. Obedience to the will of God is what's on the line. Now something happens here. 
in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and the sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. An angel comes to strengthen him in this moment. There's no mention of this angel in Matthew and Mark. Why not? Jesus is praying. He's, he's on his knees. He's praying in, earnestly and as intensely as he can. And what happens here is his prayer gets answered. God knows what Jesus is going through. He knows the temptation about to come. And God answers his prayer and sends him an angel. And Luke wants us to see how intense the temptation is and how difficult it is for Christ that God even sent him an angel. In Jesus' humanity, this was a hard decision. This wasn't a slam dunk. He has a human nature that's going to experience everything in every horrifically human way possible. But in his divinity, he knows it's coming. He knows the plan. And that makes the humanity of it all, all that more difficult. God sends him an angel for the temptation that's about to come. And sweat became drops of blood falling on the ground. Luke, the doctor, tells us about this. That can be, this can be literal, that uh, there's, there's uh, hematidrosis as a medical condition where uh, under great, great stress, the human body capillaries do release. So it could be literal in that sense, or it could be figuratively sweating drops of blood. Either, either way you want to take it, doesn't matter too much. It's the most intense form of, of sweating or suffering that can possibly be, and he, he prays more earnestly. So, so the place, Gethsemane is not mentioned, we only get the place. Peter, James, and John are not mentioned. We only get them. Uh, now, Matthew and Mark, go; they're very specific about telling us that three different times Jesus had to go back to his disciples. One time, and then the next time, and then the third time. All right. Luke is not interested in how many times he had to go do that. Don't get stuck on how many times Jesus had to do it. Just know that he prayed earnestly, and so earnestly God answered his prayer. Because he needed to have that prayer answered. Um, the angel is not mentioned by Matthew and Mark. The sweating blood is not mentioned by Matthew and Mark. Luke wants us to see the agony, the depth of the agony that's there. He's in intense agony. His agony is rooted in the reality he knows that he's about to face. And what he's about to face is the time, the opportune time, when Satan confronts him once again and tempts him. 45 and 46. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. You may not enter into temptation. First of all, um, it says there that he found them sleeping for sorrow. And I don't have an answer for that. Uh, it could be that the light might be coming on. They're seeing Jesus in some form, and they're sorry about it. Or it might be that Jesus is sorry he sees them sleeping. And then there's really no explanation for what that means there. I can't help you with that. But he finds them sleeping. Now, the question for you and I is, why are they sleeping? He's, he's told them how many times this is going to happen, and now it's happening He's warned them to adjust their expectations. It's not going to be like you thought. It's going to be way worse than you thought. 
All right. Why are they sleeping? He, you know, their father, they've given up jobs, homes, walked away, families temporarily to follow him. And now in his dark, deep, deepest, darkest hour, they're not. What's wrong with them? Did they eat too much at Passover and they can't stay awake? I mean, it, it's, it's nothing that simple. The, the answer is clearly they liked, they lacked hindsight. They didn't know. They, they didn't see the full picture. Jesus knew the whole plan. That's why he's in agony. They're not in agony because they don't know the whole plan. Now, they've, it's been hinted at, but you and I know because we have hindsight that it's not till after the resurrection. He reunites with them with his transformed body in the upper room, and then he ascends into heaven, gives them some instruction, and the Holy Spirit comes at, at Pentecost. That's when the lights come on and they got the whole picture. They don't have hindsight until then, and then is not now. They're in a position right now only to know what they know, and they don't have the whole picture. So we should have grace for them knowing they weren't given hindsight, right? Hindsight matters. Could have made a great deal of difference to an Afghanistan pullout or to JFK at another moment in time. But with the disciples, with Jesus, they're asleep because they don't have hindsight. Hindsight, very important to our lesson here today. You know what, though? You have hindsight. You have Luke's text. 39 to 46. You have hindsight. Luke has just described to you the intensity and the gravity of what Jesus suffered, not on the cross, not in the beatings, but just to get past Satan in the garden. Luke wants us to see something in the garden that we probably haven't seen before. Jesus knew the plan, and it was way worse than you think. Notice I said you. Jesus knew the plan. It wasn't way worse than he thought. He knew the plan. He knew exactly what was going to happen in the plan. And he knew the temptation stood in front of him. And, and, and fully man, fully divine, he had to deal with it. And he did. But you and I have hindsight. See, by the time Luke writes this, you know what Luke has? Hindsight. He's, he's giving us his hindsight. Because all of this has already happened when Luke writes this book. He, this isn't prophecy, this is hindsight. Luke wants his readers to have hindsight. And Luke is using every literary device he can think of to focus in on the agony of Christ facing the temptation of Satan. How bad was it? It's worse than you think. It was worse than you think. Having been given this, uh, this hindsight from Luke, you're all sitting here now. Now you have hindsight if you didn't have it before. What is your response to what he endured for you? Does all of this hindsight to his suffering and agony, does it in any way, shape, or form help you to understand the depravity of your sin? What he went through to deal with your sin. He drank the blood out of the cup for you. He drank from the cup. You put the blood in there. Your sin was in there. God's wrath for that sin that was in there, he drank it on your behalf. When we neglect to consider what Jesus suffered on our behalf, we too can be said to have slept through the whole thing. 
It's easy to take something like, like this garden passage and to sleep through it, to uh, underestimate uh, what Luke was trying to, to tell us about the whole thing. But the agony in the garden, from Luke's perspective, was all about the temptation from Satan. Satan, who had departed, was returning for an opportune time. And in this moment, he returned. Now, if you're a Christian and you know this, uh, I'm, I'm just uh, refreshing your memory, maybe. I'm just reminding you the depravity of your sin, the depths of the grace that went to cover your sin. If you're a new believer, if you're just working your way through things, I'm just trying to get you to have a right perspective on what Jesus did for you. He did for you greatly exceeds what you thought it was. It's what, what he did for you was way worse than you think. And if you're not believing yet, if you don't own this, okay, then there's a cup full of God's wrath that you, that's, it's got your name on it. And you're going to drink that cup. And you're not going to like it. The wrath of God waits for those who don't understand that Jesus drank the cup, on your cup, your the blood that was planned for you on your behalf. So this morning, in a minute, we're going to do communion. <coughs> and we're going to think about that cup. Let's pray. Father, the, the days ahead, the arrest, the blood, the passion, the nails, all of that is there. But we stop for this moment in time just to stop at the temptation. The temptation that was the threshold of all that that was to come. That your will would be done. That Christ's obedience, not to take an off-ramp, not to tap out, but to see it through on our behalf. Father, we pray this morning that we can take measure of that in, in greater measure than we ever have previously. And we ask for your wisdom to enable us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.